turn attention for a moment here to uh, Proverbs chapter 1. I'll race you there, see if you can get there first. Got it. There we go. Proverbs chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Lord, thank you for your word. Well, we are so glad you're here with us this morning, and we're going to be turning to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is part of the wisdom literature, which includes Job, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon in your Bibles, kind of in the middle, kind of grouped together in the wisdom literature. Um, so before we do that, um, we're going to dismiss the kids. Kids, you can go to your class, prospective classes, um, and we will learn together, and they will learn too, more appropriate, age appropriate, about Jesus, and we're going to learn about Jesus. He actually is in the book of Proverbs. Uh, Jesus is the point of every story, the hero of every narrative. Is about Jesus Christ. So if you come here and you want to learn about the weather or some other cute saying and not about Jesus, I'm sorry, all we have is Jesus. That's all we have. Amen. So we're going to go through this wonderful book. I want to encourage you to read uh, the book of Proverbs throughout the summer, um, but actually really better would be to get you know, acquainted with the book of Proverbs, read the book of Proverbs um, throughout the year and make it just a, a regular diet for you. We're in that book throughout the summer. So if you're missing or you're on, well, if you're missing, we'll look for you. But if you're on vacation, uh, maybe visiting family, you can always go to our website um, where there's a video, audio downloads, um, podcasts. You can get the podcast as well. So we're just in this super crazy, fast-paced information age, Um, but that doesn't really say a whole lot about wisdom. Thank you, sir. Yeah. It doesn't say a whole lot about wisdom, because I think we have a lot of information, but one of the things we really lack is wisdom. I'm just checking email. You don't mind for a minute, do you? No, just kidding. (laughs) I use this with... I use this to uh, connect with the wireless, with, the, with there, so I see what's going on. So I don't have to keep going like that, to be honest. Four dollars $4 and we got it made here. All right, good. All right, so we live in a fast-paced society, a fast-paced informational age, but one of the things we do is lack wisdom. And this book, this, this book of Proverbs, is going to teach us about wisdom, not like wisdom from your own brain or from your own information or trying to be wise in your own eyes, but in the ways and the will of God. On the one hand, the book of Proverbs about uh, growing in knowledge, growing in wisdom, growing in information, but it's ultimately really about living in such a way that it brings glory to God. It points to Jesus. It points to God. Our title, as you can see, is God's Wisdom for Gospel Living. It tells us that the book of Proverbs is for, is good news. It's good news. Proverbs is good news for broken people, grace to the undeserving sinner like me. It's hope. For us in a broken and twisted and jacked up world, it's about grace. It's about living life in all humility. That's Christ's life is living through us. It's living out the gospel. So little by little, people around us get to see how life is lived under King Jesus, how life is lived out in the kingdom and the way it's supposed to look and the way it will look in all eternity. A little glimpse of gospel living. So through you, through me, through growing in wisdom, Christ will be seen more and more. And we live in such a way, and that's what it means by gospel wisdom, oh, excuse me, God's wisdom for gospel living is that people will see us put into practice this book of Proverbs. They will see, as we put this into practice, they will see the decisions we make. They'll see the paths that we choose, and they'll, they'll see the way in which we live life. And they'll see that it's because we treasure and love Jesus above all else. That's gospel living. And as we do that, we'll get a chance. God, I believe, will open a door to demonstrate and declare living on mission, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week, we opened the book and did a little introduction. I want to encourage you, if you have not heard uh, the first sermon, to just to make sure you read that, make sure you watch that, see that, listen to that, um, so we can all be on the same page about how to interpret the book of Proverbs. We said last week there are seven different sections in the book of Proverbs, two very different styles of writing. The first nine chapters is the, is the introduction. It's the preface. It's, it's a call. If you look at verse 8 of chapter 1, Hear, my son. It's a call of a father. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Listen, listen to what I have to say. Don't forsake your mother's teaching. So the first nine chapters, this call is this pursuit to follow, to search after, to receive, to embrace wisdom. Follow wisdom. Listen to wisdom. Listen to the instruction of your wise mother. And chapter 10 and following is when we get into the proper, uh, proverb propers, as they call them, the, the pithy statements of wisdom, which we looked at a little bit last week. You need to know poetic parallelism to understand the Proverbs. Today, what I want to do today is look at the first seven verses of Proverbs. It's really the preamble. It's, it's the introductory verses where we're going to see three very important things as we move forward, kind of, kind of do some topical studies expositionally, but topical through the book, and to see three things today, three things that I want us to see today. Number one, the foremost person who wrote this book. Two, the fundamental purpose. What does, what is the found, what does it look like fundamentally to walk in wisdom? Number three, the foundational principle. Without the foundational principle, everything I'm going to say, all that we're going to do will mean nothing. You've got to get this. Very important today, okay? So number one, the foremost person. Look at verse one. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. The, po- the proverb begins with a title, and the title is, this is the book of Proverbs from Solomon. Now last week we said that Solomon was not the only author, but he is the major one. He is the foremost person who did most of the writing through the book of Proverbs. God raised up Solomon to write and give us the Proverbs. I think, just from a technical side, the, the title opens up with the book of Proverbs letting us know that the book began its origin or began being compiled during the reign of Solomon, which was around 970 BC. But then if you go to Proverbs chapter 25, verse 1, you will read, these also are Proverbs of Solomon. Now, that the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, wrote. So we see Agur, A-G-U-R, and some other writers that wrote this book. Solomon's the primary guy. And in chapter 25, we see that these are men of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the king of Judah at around, I think his his reign ended around 695, 697 B.C. Now that's important because Hezekiah was a good king. If you know anything about Old Testament history, when the kingdom was split, Israel had a whole bunch of kings, Judah had a whole bunch of kings. Israel had how many good kings? Zero. Not one good king in all of Israel when the kingdom was split. Judah had a bunch of kings, and there was about seven good kings, some really good, some really not that good. Hezekiah and Josiah stood out as one of the best kings of all of Judah. Okay, so here it is. Somewhere between 970, the beginning of, of the book, where Solomon's in reign as the king, and Hezekiah, 9, 697 B.C. is when this book was compiled. We don't know exactly, you know, when it was totally part of the Old Testament canon, but some, and most people think, somewhere between those two ages it was written, and before they went into exile, in 586, we have the book. Okay, so Solomon, again, if you know anything about Old Testament, he is king when his father David, the beloved king of Israel, dies. It was Solomon who would build the temple, right? The Jews are wandering, they build a tabernacle, a tent. Solomon comes and he builds this temple where the, what? The Shekinah glory comes, the presence of God, the panim, the face of God comes. Solomon's a very major figure in the Old Testament uh, redemptive history, the story of, of redemption. And Solomon raises up this, this builds this temple, and they is called what they call the golden years of Israel. He expands the border. They become military strong. Um, it's a very good time in the life of Israel. In fact, 1 Kings 3 and 4, if you read it, God comes to Solomon and says, what do you want? 
I want wisdom. I want to govern your people right. I, I, want, I want you to be seen. I want you to be known. I want your wills, your ways to be heard and seen in my decision making. And God says, very good. You could have got riches, but you didn't ask for that. So he gives him lots of wisdom. Pours out wisdom upon Solomon. And the Bible says in, in 1 Kings 4 that people from all over came to hear Solomon's wisdom. He was the most wise guy I'm going to say that a lot over this series, so you better get used to it. Wise guys, just comes with naturally. But anyway, uh, wisdom from all over. They come and from all nations and kings come to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But also, as you know, Solomon began well, but Solomon did not listen to his own wisdom. And he sinned against God. At the end of his life, he marries several women, including foreign women, and they influence him. And he starts sacrificing and worshiping false gods. And his kingdom is split in two. So although he begins well, he kind of ends poorly. Saul, the first king of Israel, it said, had no heart toward God. David, it says, had a whole heart toward God. Solomon, he was half-hearted. And you see at the end of his life, things got really bad. But we do know from this book that it's part of the Old Testament canon So this wisdom that we're looking at, this scripture as we read it, as you read the book of Proverbs, it is not your fortune cookie, okay? It it is not just wisdom pulled out of the air. It's somebody's smart sayings. It is divinely inspired. It is God-breathed. This is God's word. It's not when you open up that fortune cookie and it's like, hey, I'm trapped in a fortune cookie company. You know what I mean? Help me. This is is real. You'll get that later. But anyway, this this is wisdom from above, now, the word proverb, missal, or michelle, in, in, in plural, singular, means similitude, a likeness, or a comparison. A proverb, and he says a proverb, the proverb of Solomon, the proverb is a governing principle of life. It is an observation and reflection of wise men concerning the way things usually work. It's a comparison of seeing that happen here, seeing this happen here, and knowing how all that stuff works together. As I said last week, it's important. Proverbs is not a promise. Proverbs are axioms. They're sayings. They're truisms. Today we say truisms and and these axioms, these statements, these pithy statements, we say things like absence makes the heart grow fonder. Actions speak louder than words, right? If you don't succeed, try, try again. It's truism. It's not a promise, right? It's not always true. Absence doesn't always make the heart grow fonder. Actually, sometimes we're glad to see people go. Amen? It's not always true. Sometimes it's like, quit. If you try it, quit, really, because it was dumb to begin with. Don't try, try again. I mean, it's just, that's the way it works. No pain, no gain. I was at physical therapy this past week for my shoulder. I have a partial tear. And uh, like I'm pushing through the pain. The guy's like, you, you got pain? I'm like, yeah, but I was like, stop. <laughs> In fact, the therapist goes, we need to talk. I'm like, okay. No pain. No pain, no gain, no work here in physical therapy. You're not supposed to work through the pain. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, yes, I'm just making matters worse. So it's not, it, it's generally true. There's generally a cause and effect in the relationship, but not always the case. They're principles, not always foolproof promises. Parents have falsely claimed this truism, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they grow old, they won't depart from it. Then you raise two kids. One loves Jesus. They both hear the gospel, and one lives more like Damien than, than Jesus. Like, you're like, what happened? There are principles to live by. Truism, not guarantees. And the Proverbs offer us to obtain wisdom. So this is about wisdom. We said the word wisdom, it's important you understand this, means skill or good sense. So, so Proverbs are these sayings, these comparisons, these statements that, that show us uh, what we need to know. And wisdom is the ability, the skill, to live that out regularly, practically in everyday life. In Exodus chapter 28, you see this word for wisdom used when God calls the priests and tells the priests to get these wisdom people, these people with skill, to make the robes and the uh, attire of the priest. Chapter 28, verse 3. You shall speak to the skillful, that's our word, whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, spirit of wisdom, and they will make Aaron's garment 
to consecrate him for my priesthood. So these men had great skill, and they were able to put these, if you know anything about the robes, they had to put these uh, uh, sapphires, and it had to be very, very, very particularly done. And God says, I'm going to give them the wisdom. I'm going to give them the skill to do that. That's, that's what it looks like in a, in, a, in, a, in a technical sense. Wisdom is for us to live by. I have a, oh yeah, Dr. Hubbard, he's a, uh, he's a late Dr. Hubbard, he's a full of seminary uh, professor. He says this, wisdom, the word wisdom, it combines the idea of observation, obedience, careful planning, prudent conduct, and sensitivity to God's will. You see, it's, it's wisdom from above, it's God showing us and giving us the ability to walk through life to make good choices, wise decisions that promotes our spiritual, our emotional and physical health. Dr. Bruce Waltke, he's a leading professor, scholar on wisdom literature. He says very simply, wisdom, the word wisdom is God's design and plan for your life. God's design and plan for your life. Let me give you one more, because I, 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 I like this one too. I don't know if I should give you all of them or some of them, but I'll give you all of them. Paige Patterson, he's a president prof in Texas. He says, wisdom is that godly quality, I love this, godly quality of assessing a situation and finding a godly way forward. Assessing a situation and finding a godly way forward. So the wisdom is... Not, is taking the word of God and the principles of God's word where there's no clear command but finding God's way through it. God's word does not, God's word does not give us an answer for every question. We need wisdom. It doesn't say in the word of God, thou shalt not eat the engine of a lawnmower. It doesn't say it. I looked. It's not wise to do so, right? It's not wise to do so. Not very smart. So these sages, these wise men, trusting in the sovereign God, and they know that through life, just through ordinary and routine life, and through miracles, but through the mundane life, mundane life, they need wisdom. Like, who do I send my resume to? Where should I work? Where should I go to college? Who should I date? Where should I live? What doctor should I go to? All that stuff's not clearly in Scripture. We need wisdom. You see, the law says there's a stop sign, or we're going to move the stop sign and put a circle in. The law says go to the right of the circle. Uh, not everybody knows that. I don't understand why. Some people go left. I'm like, where are they going? But anyway, the law says go right in the circle. Wisdom says why did we change that? I don't know. Somebody knows. Somebody has a study somewhere. I don't know. But wisdom says why? In fact, before we move on to our next one, my brother and I, Doug uh, Forstoff, and I were talking last week. And, 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 we, and we both kind of like, you know, coming to this realization, this truth, that the world will tell you that you need to experience life, to go out there and live. And when you live life, when you experience life, you will learn wisdom. But godly wisdom is not experience life and then learn. It's learn and then experience life. In Proverbs, hakma is the Hebrew word. It conveys a mastery of, this, of, 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 of your over your experience, mastery over your experience that has to do with your intellect, your emotional, and the spiritual state of knowing existentially, knowing, meaning we, acted, we act out of life through the internal reality, something going on in our heart, truth we're learning, spiritual knowledge, and knowing God. That's how we, then you live life and you gain wisdom. Someone could memorize the entire book of Proverbs word for word. It's not very long and still be a fool, right? Proverbs 4, 13, keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her for she is your life. You see the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God. We're going to see the fear of the Lord informs behavior. What you think about God how you see this wisdom coming to you, how it is that you get wisdom will inform, will affect, will show in how you live your life, not the other way around. This wisdom we know from last week is personified, it's, it's personalized and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the source of life 
itself. Jesus Christ is the source of righteousness and integrity and wisdom. Jesus Christ himself calls everyone to come to him, to turn to him, to trust him. He is life itself. He is the full expression of wisdom. He alone can guide us. He alone can impart wisdom. He alone gives us a new heart and the ability to follow wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.24, Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. Number two, the foundational purpose. What does it look like? What are some of the ground rules? What are some of the ways in which acts, which wisdom acts? A-C-T-S, just in case you're wondering what I'm saying. Solomon uses different words. Notice in verses 2 through 6. Notice that each verse, other than 5, begins with to know. (coughs) Right? See that? To know wisdom, to receive instruction, to give prudence, to give understandings. So here's the things that wisdom is for. The Proverbs are trying to give us those things in verses 2 through 6. So let's look at them. Verse 2. <clears throat> to know wisdom and instruction. We already talked about wisdom. God's design and plan for life. And what we see here is that this proverb was given us not only to know wisdom, but look what it says, but to know instruction. <clears throat> That's an important word. <clears throat> that word <clears throat> is the Hebrew word masur, M-A-S-U-R. It means discipline. It means discipline. It means to instruct, to reprove, to chastise. To gain wisdom and to be instructed. Chapter 3, verse 11 of Proverbs, and again in Hebrews 12, the counterpart says this. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Masur. Be weary or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him he loves and the father who is the son in whom he delights. It means to bring under, to quell the waywardness of a child. When a child runs toward folly, when a child runs toward sin, or, or a child of God runs in a direction they're not supposed to go, our Heavenly Father brings chastisement into their life. To direct them, to point them, to lead them in right living. It's an education through correction. Does that make sense? The purpose of discipline is, is correction, is to get back under the rule of God. It is to grow in maturity in God. This should immediately be a problem because that's not what we want to hear. Let's be honest. Yeah, I like discipline. Yeah, chastise me, O oh Lord. Today's the day I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, who, who really says that? Right? We want to live our own way, do our own freedoms, run our own course. Nobody wants to be dis- disciplined. We want to exult in our freedoms. But the book of Proverbs teaches us the opposite. To, to know God is to know wisdom and to be disciplined and instructed by God. Right off the bat. The truth and the reality is we're born not wise but foolish. We obtain wisdom through the Lord's instructions. And if you're anything like me, I'm hard-headed. I have to be instructed and disciplined along the way. It's humility and it's humiliating and hard, but it has to be done. C.J. Mahaney says, I am a proud man pursuing humility by the grace of God. How true is that? I'm a proud man or a woman. If I say man or he, it means both, okay? It's humiliating. I'm a proud man pursuing humility by the grace of God. Okay, so Solomon goes on to write, look what it says. To understand words of insight, rest of, of, of verse two. Verse, yeah, verse two. To understand words of insight. To understand has the ability, means the ability to, to, to know which direction one is going, right? And words of insight means discernment, to discern to understand what direction to go in. I think the New American Standard has to discern the sayings of understandings. This is what it means. It means seeing two sides. It means seeing two paths, right? A wise person can distinguish between which is the right path to go and the wrong path to go, which path to to wisdom and which path is to foolishness. You're able to say, that's good, that's wise, that's the direction, that's foolish, I'm not going there. That's a bad direction to go to. That thing, that purpose, that behavior, that habit, that, that's not healthy for me. Even if it's freedom, it's, that's not the way I ought to go. That's what he's saying. Knowing the ability, looking and discerning. Figure out 
Which is righteous, which is folly, which is wisdom, which is error, which is prideful, what is humility. Verse 3, to receive instructions in wise dealing, righteousness, justice, equity. This is from the student's perspective that they are to receive, right? So receive, Solomon's saying receive this student. Verse 5 and verse 6 will be from the teacher, but here it's to receive it, to receive instruction. And, and, and really, if you look at verse 3, it really is the, the first key to unlock this passage for us because you have to be a student willing. You have to be humble enough to receive instruction. You see what I mean? I know that's, that sounds maybe elementary, but there, there's a heart and there's an there's a attitude that is being reflective here to receive it. And the word instruction is the same word as masor, verse 2. It's discipline. So be disciplined. And now he's saying to receive discipline. You see that? Hebrews chapter 12. For the moment, all discipline seems painful (laughs) rather than pleasant. Amen. Everybody say amen. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So those who have been trained by it. So to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, Hebrews tells us, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. To receive discipline is to understand the benefits, the beneficial results of discipline, to pull oneself together, to be able to move forward even when we are chastised. In fact, according to Hebrew, it's, it's vigorous, it's rejuvenating to know that God loves you and chastises you for your good and his glory. Now, the word wise dealing is not the word wisdom. You may think, well, that's, that seems like the same. It's not. The NIV picks it up well. It says to receive instruction for a prudent life. Wise dealing, prudent life, prudent behavior. It is the, is the Hebrew word haskel. Comes from the word skel, right? You say, well, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you. In 1 Samuel... Abigail, maybe you know the story, Abigail was married to a man named Nabal. Nabal's name means a fool, and he was. You can read it for yourself, chapter 5, I believe. It, it was a fool. And the story goes on with, with, with this Abigail who says she is beautiful, but she's also Haskell. She's also prudent. And the story goes on that King David was coming to this place where the, the husband was, and the husband treated him totally disrespectful. So David's like, all right, when I get there, I'm cutting his head off. That's what I'm going to do. And she, in wise dealing and prudent behavior, runs out to meet King David and, and calms down the situation, and everything goes well for the husband. He gets to live. A week later, God kills him, but he, she did a good job. She did a really good job. She was prudent. She, was, she used discretion on how to live life. How do I get my foolish husband out of this mess? Okay? My wife will tell you that when dealing with delicate things around the house, I am not good. I am a bull in a china shop. I break everything I touch. <laughs> you know, put this over there, okay. You throw it. You don't go walk over there. You throw it. You know what I mean? That's what happened. And you break stuff. That's the opposite of prudent life, right? Now, hopefully I don't do that with people, but with stuff, I do. And it says, in righteousness, that means doing the right thing, conforming to a standard, in justice, equity, it's treating people fairly. fairly. So this, this prudent, this discretion is seen in doing the right thing, it's treating people equally, it's, it's, it's being just, you know, being, having justice in your decision-making. Look at verse 4. To give prudence, a different word, it means shrewdness, cunning, to be shrewd and cunning to who? To the simple. Knowledge and discretion to the youth. You know what this means? This means if you're naive and you're gullible, there's hope for you. That's what it means. If people are used to people selling you the Brooklyn Bridge, there's hope for you. God says to the simple, I will give wisdom. I will give knowledge. I will give understanding, particularly to the youth who are simple. Now, let's be honest. You could be 75 years old and be a fool. You could be 24 And have great wisdom. Right? You could be living for yourself for 65, 70 years. And be an absolute fool when it comes to the things of the Lord. And you could be 26, 27 seeking the face of God. And and have lots of wisdom. It's not really about age. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart there is no God. 
So you can have a degree, you can have five degrees, diplomas, you can have all kinds of information about the stars, science, medicine, legal issues, all kinds of information and still be what God considers a fool. And you could be somewhat naive to the things around you, maybe not so intellectually brilliant, but have lots of wisdom. Now let's be fair, there are a lot of smart people intellectually that have great wisdom as well. But one does not mean the other, right? There are people that are not going to any you know, teaching in an Ivy League university, but they have lots of wisdom. And when you talk to them, you know that, but they speak, when they speak, they speak with such wisdom. That's what he's talking about. Some people are just simple folks, but they're wise. Verse five and six, as we move on, is an exhortation to the truly wise and and the discerning. And he gives us three things. I want you to notice these three things. One is, in verse five and six, to increase in learning. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. So even if you're wise, even if you gathered some wisdom, even if you have, have loaned God's word, had walked God's way, there's still room to grow. That's what he's saying. Every teacher will tell you, at least good ones, will tell you that there's always room to learn. There's always room to grow, right? We never come to the book of Proverbs and go, oh, I read that verse before I got everything out of it. If you've been a Christian even for a week, and you're reading scripture regularly, you get those aha moments like I've never seen that before, right? You're like, oh, I, that, that's a, that's a, that is awesome. This fall, we're studying the gospel according to John. It was Charles Spurgeon who said that book is shallow enough for a child to wade in, but deep enough to drown an elephant. It's God's word. It's God's word. We can't come to it thinking we've got all the gold out of it. Hebrews writer tells us it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, right? It's marrows and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, man. It's piercing, it's live and active. But according to this, it says we have to be wise. We have to recognize there's stuff there. Number two, look what it says, that we may be wise in that and learn and increase, but to obtain guidance interesting word it comes from the hebrew word which means ropes and it's one of those things that the ships would use as a rope to steer the stutter uh, the rudder stutter the rudder and and as the ship would go it would know which way to go left or right it's 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 wisdom and insight and in navigating through life as a as a ship has you know going through the waters with insight it's not this this is what i'll do you know that's not one of those Judas hung himself like, that's not a good idea, let me try that again, you know? Uh, it's, it's gaining wisdom. And I will tell you that wisdom, gained wisdom, knowing God's way, knowing which way that rope is turning, comes to us, not always through like, wow, that was really, God just poured out that on me, that happens. But many times it comes through reading, through praying, through living life together, to listening, to wise counsel. It's a reservoir that, that God uses with the deep abiding walk with Jesus. It's amazing to me how many people neglect the scriptures, neglect living life together, have been living in life in their own wisdom, their own folly, their own ways, and then when a decision comes, they expect God to just pour out this wisdom and give them decision which way to go. It doesn't work that way most of the time. It's the reservoir. It's, it's the walking and abiding with Jesus. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Number three, verse six, to understand a proverb and saying the words of the wise and their riddles. So it's to grow in knowledge. It's to have this, this wealth of information and, and knowledge and loving of Jesus. And number three is to understand and the ability to interpret all kinds of scripture. Look what it says here, the proverb. Understanding the poetic, poetic nature of the proverb, the sayings, the exhortation, the knowledge of others, and the riddles literally means deep things of God. It's puzzles that, you know, you got these riddles that you're trying to figure out, but when you do, you, you become wise and not foolish. Think of it this way. You have three friends calling you. You have the proverb. You have the pithy statements. You have the, the truisms, the, the axioms speaking to you. You have the sayings, the knowledge of people pouring out on you. And then you have the riddles and trying to figure those things out. They're all calling you as his friends to instruct you and I to live life successfully. And what I mean by that is the good and prosperous life. A life that treasures and centers itself on Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's 
true success. Wisdom teaches us how to embrace and receive with an open heart the discipline of the Lord. Wisdom teaches us to humbly discern the right path, the path of God. Wisdom teaches us to live with great discretion when dealing with others. Wisdom teaches us to be shrewd in a good way. For unless you stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Wisdom teaches us to never stop growing and understanding of wisdom to obtain as if we obtained everything. And wisdom is to receive instruction in the way that God speaks to us. But there's one last thing that we have to get in order for all this to take place. And that is the foundational principle underlined in your Bible, verse 7. The motto, the credo, the foundation The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instructions. Now, understand this, family. When it says the beginning of knowledge, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, do not think that it's the beginning and once you grasp what this means, you leave it somewhere else. You move on to something bigger and better. That's not what it means. It is the beginning. It is foundational. It is the cornerstone to its building. Everything is built upon it. It is never to be removed. It is never to be replaced. It holds everything together from being a mess, from collapsing. Now remember parallelism. We talked about this. Look at the second line. Helps us understand the first line, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction, We already talked about wisdom and instruction. Fools despise an emotional word. It's contempt. It's it's, it's relational brokenness, relational detachment. I'm so smart. I have so much wisdom. I know what's going on. I don't need to hear from God. I am too busy. I am too uh, doing my own thing to bother to listen. Why bother with him? Look what it says. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord, but fools despise and hold in contempt, detach themselves from God's wisdom and God's instruction. That's what he's saying, okay? On the other hand, verse 1, verse 7 of the first part, it assumes there's a relationship. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It assumes, assumes relationship. It is not this cringing terror of God, this guilty thought, oh my, if God sees me, if God comes, I'm, here he comes, I'm in big trouble. It is a sense of revering all of God's existence, of revering of his presence. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see anything that is above you. End quote. Isn't that true? Fearing God involves reverence, respect, awe, majesty, wonder, and a healthy and holy respect for God, his person, his works, his ways, his will, his commands. I think it's important, look at that verse. I think it's important to point out in verse seven that the word Lord is not the word Elohim. That word Lord is very important. It is the word Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God where God is describing himself as a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Elohim is his sovereignty ruling over the world. Yahweh is a personal name that God used in the covenant relationship with Abraham. And the name he used when he was met with Moses in the burning bush. That's very important. It is the worshiping and the submission of this covenant-making, covenant-keeping, personal God. Many of us, unfortunately, we think that the fear of the Lord, and we think in negative terms, you're telling me to fear God. That, that doesn't sound healthy. That doesn't sound right. Well, there's a negative and a positive to understanding of fearing of God. Okay? So I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Let me explain. Negative and positive. There is a fear of someone that you may have, someone that you fear coming into relationship, coming into the presence of someone because they may harm you. They may hurt you. They may talk 
trash to you. And you fear them because you fear coming into their presence. They're not for you. They're against you. You understand that? Okay. Uh, uh, But then there is a different kind of fear. Not that you distrust them, but you love them. Not that you are concerned about them hurting you. You actually know that they love and care about you. And you have a high statute of them that you have respect for them. That's the positive sense of fear. In negative fear, you're afraid of someone will harm you. In positive fear, you don't want to do anything to harm them. You don't want to displease them. You don't want to dishonor them. See the difference? Positive and negative fear. Right? If I were to take out a vase or a vase and a, or, or let's say a, an instrument, a violin, that's $10 million. It's worth $10 million. They got them out there. And I've had one here, and I don't. But if I did, and I handed it to everybody in the front row, I would hope that you'd be afraid to drop it. Like this very expensive vase, you'd be like, you know, maybe thousands of years old, worth millions of dollars. You'd be holding that, and you'd be holding it close. You'd be afraid to drop it. Not afraid that it's going to harm you, but afraid that you would dishonor it. That's the difference between healthy fear and not healthy fear. Positive fear, negative fear. Now, there's been people in your life that you have met, I'm sure, along the way, that you had a positive sense of, of fear, tremble. Don't want to be careful what you say. Now, I was thinking through this, the people that I met, and I'm thinking to myself, some people may hate these people, but that's not the point. Okay, governors and, and ball players. met Bernie Williams. I had lunch with George Pataki, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, oh, so who cares? Well, that's not the point. The point is, if someone you know or heard of and know about, and you have great respect for that person, when that person comes into your presence, or if he ever does, or she ever does, there's a sense of trembling. There's a sense of fear. There's a sense of, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to dishonor that in any way possible. You understand that, everybody? One of the ways, too, that you could understand the differences between positive and negative fear is understanding that fear captivates you. All fear captivates you, some negative, some positive. If you're afraid of snakes, let me tell you, you're running for cover. If you're afraid of spiders and you see one, we had a mouse at my house with my daughters, I'll never forget it, screaming down the hall. I thought a lion had entered the house, right? But they're afraid and they're captivated. They're watching every move where that mouse is going. It went down the hallway, you know, like, get that thing, right? It's captivated them. When my wife and I uh, went to Italy, we went a few years back in 2005, went to Florence. I don't know if I told this story before, but I went to Florence. I went to a, a cathedral called the Duomo. It's, it, you can fly a plane in it. It's that big. So we go to this, this Duomo, this cathedral, and they have this spiral, this scared staircase, but it's enclosed, so you can't really see anything. And everybody's going up. I'm like, all right, let's see what's up there. So my wife and I go up, and I'm, she's behind me. I'm walking up the stairs, and I'm going all the way up. I don't know where I was going to end up. And then when I got to the top, I stepped right out on a catwalk in the middle on top of this, inside, but on top of the church. I grabbed the railing. I thought my arm was going to fall off. I'm a phobia. I got phobias of heights. And I just stepped out and went, grabbed it. And my wife looked at me. I mean, I was holding on. I could have bent that metal. She's like, are you okay? And I'm like, no. And I'm like, I'm, I'm just like, captivated by what's going on. It was just unbelievable. And we go around, I'm, I'm barely making it. I'm trying not to freak out. And as we get to the other end, everyone's going up another level. I'm thinking, there's no way. There's no way. So I went down. I probably went down. I'm like, I am not going up. There's that awe. There's that wonder. But it was negative. It, it froze me in my, in, my, in, my, in my shoes. You know what I'm saying? That's negative fear. That's, and I don't mean it's negative to have that fear, but that's the kind of fear that captivates you. But when we talk about God, when we talk about the fear of God, we're not talking about self-absorption, oh my. We're talking about a God-centered, healthy fear. Keeps your minds captivated, constantly thinking about, because God is good. Because God is redemption. He doesn't terrorize us. He frees us. So the fear of the Lord is being dominated captivated under the control of God who loves you, who loves you. The positive, the relational fear of the Lord is a life centered on God that produces joy and awe and wonder before his majesty, the greatness of God, of who he is and all that he has done. For the believer in Jesus Christ, the fear and the awe of God does not drive us away, but draws us to his care and his compassion. In fact, what you are afraid of, listen, will actually show you what you're living for. Suppose if you 
need wealth. You need family. You need a husband, a wife. If you need prestige and power and presence to be somebody, if you need that to feel worthwhile and valuable, the thing you fear the most is losing it. Is losing it. Losing a job is not just bad news. It will crush you if you're built and you are seeking that for a sense of identity. If you lose your influence or someone turns on you, you're not just hurt, you're crushed. If you trace your fears, you will find what you are trusting in. What your heart wants most is the thing you fear of losing. The fear of the Lord is being dominated and captivated. Dominated and captivated under the control of God who loves you, who promised to never leave you. And that's a good thing because God is a good God. This positive, joyful fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the foundation of your wisdom. Why? The only way to get it. Listen, family, if you get anything, get this. The only way to get it is to be absolutely sure to know The fear of the Lord in a positive way is to be absolutely sure that God is not going to hurt you. To be absolutely sure in spite of your faults, in spite of your flaws, in spite of your sin, he will not condemn you. The difference between the person who approaches God on a negative fear, because that's what a lot of people do. "Uh Uh-oh, I better do something or God's going to get me. The, the difference between a person who approaches God out of negative fear and the positive fear, the difference between those who know the gospel, have a new heart, and those who are just white-knuckling it under the fear is the one who knows they have been forgiven. They have been redeemed. They have been to a place where there is no more condemnation. Psalm 103. If you have a Bible, turn there. Verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, who could stand? The answer, no one. Verse 4. But, contrasting parallelism, but with you there is forgiveness. And look what it says, that you may be what? Feared. Really? The more that I'm white-knuckling and I'm afraid you're going to get me, that should motivate fear, does it not? No. You mean the more you have forgiven me, the more you have redeemed me, the more you have cleansed me will produce fear? Yes. That's what it says. The more I experience your love, the more I experience your forgiveness, the more I fear you. Fear is actually heightened by love and heightened by forgiveness. And because of the gospel... God knows you, God loves you, God delights in you because of Jesus Christ. And then in turn, with that forgiveness and the redemption and the love and and all the things, this majestic, glorious, great God loves you and redeems you and calls you his child, out of that we fear him, we love him, we honor him, we worship him, we delight in him above everything in the universe. It's not being afraid he's going to beat me or condemn me. It's not being afraid that he's going to hurt me and hurt you. The fear of the Lord is a sense that you want to not grieve him, honor him and love him because he loves you. Now you see why people in this world who don't have a relationship with Christ, who have not had the forgiveness of sins, uh, uh, cleanse them and wash them because of the reconciling work of Jesus on the cross, they approach God in a negative fear. Oh my word, wait till he gets you, of course. Negative fear is I better obey God or else. He's going to strike me down when I get out of line. After a while, people like that either live in fear their whole life. Their whole life they're living in fear. Or Romans 1 says they suppress the truth. And by their unrighteous acts, they deny the truth. They put it under the rug and they live any old way they want. But if you have, and I have a biblical relational fear of the Lord, it will make you wise. Listen, when the gospel comes into your life, when God's love and grace has you captivated and you begin to see, you begin to embrace, you begin to treasure Christ above all earthly treasures because of all that he has done, then you are wide open to what? Embrace and receive an open heart 
to the discipline of the Lord because he loves you. To humbly discern the right path. The path God lays out for you is the best path. To live with discretion when dealing with others because you want to honor him and love him and you want others to do the same. To be shrewd in a good way to stand for God's glory and not be sidetracked. To never stop growing in wisdom and understanding because the greater the wisdom, the greater understanding, the greater it means that you're soaking in the beauty of God to receive instruction from all the different ways he has revealed to you because the more you embrace wisdom and truth, the more you embrace his love and forgiveness. That's wisdom. Because it's not about your works, it's not about your deeds, it's about Jesus' work, his deeds, his love, his forgiveness toward you. 1 Corinthians 1, Jesus is the wisdom of God. Will you embrace him? Will you submit to him? Will you love and honor him and make him known to others? That's gospel wisdom. That's God's wisdom for living out the gospel. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your instructions. Father, thank you for your wisdom that you've given to us. Father, thank you most of all for Jesus Christ, who is wisdom. We pray Father, as your children, that we will seek his face, know his ways, and walk in wisdom as he is wisdom. And Father, I want to pray particularly for those here today that have not yet made that decision, that have been living a life that may be marked in this world by wisdom, but it's really foolishness. You said the wise things of this world are foolishness to you, but the foolishness of these things is wisdom. So Lord, we pray that together as a family we will seek you. We pray, Lord, that those who don't know you will will turn from their foolish ways and believe on you and trust in you and receive the wisdom, which is Christ, his work on the cross, his death for their sin, his, his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin and his resurrection from the dead, guaranteeing a future hope for us. So, Father... As your children, we pray that we would walk in wisdom as we love Jesus, living on mission, declaring and demonstrating the gospel in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Let's continue to pray as we just sing. Singing is praying as we just continue to worship through song.